Investors Chronicle. Companies and markets show on the docket today. Commodities commotion. Alex Hamer joins the show to talk through some of the more niche commodities under threat posed by sanctions to Russia. After that, we look at the M&A space and ask whether the current climate has led to a more safety-first approach from buyers. And finally, I'll be joined by Michael Fahey to talk through his feature, Travel Industry Bears COVID Scars. Let's get into it. Hello, hello. Thursday, 17th March. Uh, The time is about 3.30 as we record. Uh, And um, delighted to be joined in the studio by three people, which I think is, uh, is a record, and one over the internet. I've got Alex Newman here. Hi. Hi, John. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Mark Robinson. John, how's it going? Yeah, good, thank you. And Alex Hamer as well. G'day. And then over the line, Julian Hoffman again. Hello. Hello, John. Always a pleasure. Good to hear from you, Julian. Um, Before we get going with our roundtable discussion, the latest from the week of of news, four Russian-focused companies will be evicted from FTSE indices from the start of next week with Evro's shares being completely frozen following sanctions on majority stakeholder Roman Abramovich. Mary McDougall has the write-up on Evro's uncertain future. Um, and Petro Pavlovsk, Polymetal and Raven Property Group are the other three companies in question, with the latter today announcing they've suspended trading of shares and plans to delist. Meanwhile, yesterday saw the Federal Reserve hike interest rates for the first time since 2018. The 0.25% is expected to be the first of many this year in the quest to tackle inflation. Today, the Bank of England followed suit with borrowing costs now up to 0.75%. This week, we've had companies' results from Brooks McDonald's, James Fisher's, Byrex Sarko, National Express, Close Brothers, Fever Tree, etc., etc. We've got write-ups available in our magazine and on the IC website. Uh, We were going to bring you Chris Akers on DFS results this episode. But unfortunately, he's called in sick, uh, much to my annoyance, as I had a great armchair expert gag lined up. Uh, get well no- get well soon, nonetheless, Chris. Uh, finally, a quick look at market movement. Positive week in Europe and the US. FTSE 100 putting on around 200 points since Monday. Worth mentioning the Hang Seng has been uh, on a bit of a roller coaster this week, down 10% at one point before rallying on news of Chinese state support. Right. That's all the headlines, I think. On with the show. Uh, we're going to start with the continued commodity crisis from the war in Ukraine with our very own Alex Hamer, who has been on top of it. Uh, there's been lots of talk about oil, steel, nickel, etc. And you've written about a lot of them. But but this week, you've picked out a few of the more niche commodities under threat as well. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it is quickly worth looking at what has happened in uh, the big ones, as you say, um, namely oil and gas Um and nickel. Um, Boris has obviously gone to the Middle East um, to ask for greater oil production from um, MBS and his equivalent in the UAE. Hasn't happened. We're still a bit, you know, short of oil and gas. Um, a visit from Boris probably wasn't going to fix that immediately. But um, we're actually seeing a lot more pressure on companies um, who've used the excuse of investors demanding a lot more uh, returns in recent years, especially in the States. Um, as an excuse to not put more cash into um, expanding production or, or or even continuing production at, at, at similar levels. Um, that talk's starting to change, especially with, you know, continued windfall tax pressure. So there should be changes there. Obviously, this won't have an immediate impact. Um, 
and I think it 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 almost is a backlash against the 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 vibe that ESG concerns have been largely responsible for our current crisis um, and lack of investment in you know in gas. It, you know this has obviously had an impact, but is 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 not the main thing. Um, so yeah, that I mean that's kind of the current situation with with, with oil and gas. Um, obviously, prices dip every time. Um, there's news of a of a slight breakthrough in 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 peace talks, um, and then the Russians blow up another you know theater full of children, and then the prices go up again. Um, but looking at the kind of secondary impacts, it it is actually a really interesting space where um, these things that we rely on for you know seemingly minor operations. So for example. Um, I've gone into detail looking at helium. Um, obviously, there's a lot of it around, but actually, you know, capturing it is is the tricky thing. And and, and most helium production in the world comes from um, natural gas um, production as a as a byproduct. Um, and the market's been really tight for for a few years now. There was hope that a Russian plant in Siberia, in the Amur region, was going to start up um, last year. Um, and and kind of add probably twenty five to to a quarter to a third of, of new production. Um, the it caught on fire, not ideal. Um, caught on fire again in January, and now um, a helium kind of expert told me that there there's very little chance that'll get repaired given the current um, sanctions. And helium, um, while important for floating balloons and fun things like that, that's about eight percent of global demand. Um, is critical for semiconductor production. Um, it's used in MRIs. It's used in cloud computing, um, where um, you replace air with its nitrogen oxygen mix with helium, and it actually increases the energy efficiency of um, big computing centers um, between twenty and forty percent because um, you know less heat is conducted and you need to cool it less. Um, so helium really important. Um, we need more of it. Is is it Russia that produces most of it, or is, is that? Well, it's it's tricky because it, it it it's almost as if Russia was going to, and then now it won't. Okay. Um. So there's a bit of a there's a slight nuance to it. Um. But is it's Texas, isn't it? Is the main source for helium in the world? Yeah. So there's a, there's a there's a yep. federal repository that has been in 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 big trouble for for oh, probably over a year now where they've had to shut it down over safety concerns. But that's kind of been the kicker that's driven the market into this undersupply situation. And now, you know, there, there are a few little little projects that are coming on. There's a, there's a primary healing site um, in Tanzania where, you know, they could just start production on that, but it's quite early stage. Um, there's a South African project that is coming together. And Robert Friedland, the man who um, was involved in the discovery of Oyutolgoi, um, who's got um, Kukula Kamua, one of the biggest copper discoveries in recent years. Um, he's got a platinum mine in South Africa. So, sorry, a bit roundabout here. But he's just invested in, in this helium company in South Africa as well to power his mine with natural gas. But, you know, that's, you know, we're not talking about that side of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there, there is massive interest in this space right now. Um, to, yeah, to, I guess, cap off the, 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 the helium side of things, um, basically... We need it. There's not enough, and this is going to get worse. And it's going to roll into the the, the existing um, impacts on semiconductors, which are you know that market's already struggling. It's so, neon, neon as well, isn't it? I think it's more like half of neon production it comes from Ukraine. 
Yeah, that's really bad for semiconductors as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, with that, rather, it's going to be bad for them without it. Um, yeah, they like neon. Yeah, um, and so you know that that that's that's a big one that you know I hadn't really thought about helium before. I've kind of you know there's one company in, on the London Stock Exchange and and a few others globally, but it's yeah it's pretty minor um, until now until <laughs> until you don't have enough of it. Um, and I think another thing that I've looked at um, is uranium. Um, obviously, the uranium market has 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 mostly had a down few years. Um, now with years of supply cuts, uh, probably not a, an increase in demand massively, but a decrease in kind of, kind of that demand destruction has, has slowed down. Um, and now Russia not being part of the global network, uh, of, of, of uranium. So there is some uranium production. A lot of uranium production comes from Kazakhstan and Canada, but Russia enriches a third of all uranium through Rosatom. And while not sanctioned yet, it's about to be, possibly, who knows, but but the market certainly thinks so. Spot uranium prices have gone over $60, which is a high for many, many years. Uh, even a month or six weeks ago, it was trading about $40 a pound. Now it's over $60. So there, there, there are real impacts there. Um, so, what's the impact of that? Sorry, um, Alex, to interrupt. Um, does that is, is it the enriched uranium that gets sent to people's power plants in various countries? Is that is that the significance of it? Yes, and the uranium market is slightly more complicated than the oil market, for example, where only I think a third of uranium trades on the spot market, but and the rest of it is is contracted over over longer term, but this kind of knocking out a significant part of that that I guess value chain more than supply chain you'd call it um, will have an impact and it might only be in a few months but people are already buying up stocks uh, in readiness for, for for shortages I don't know I don't know what buying spot uranium you know will do for if you can't get it enriched but um, speculators will speculate. Well, hopefully we get to a situation where the Iranians uh, increase their ability to enrich uh, uranium, which is uh, on the cards. It's a strange sort of market, actually. <laughs> oh, Armageddon input. <laughs> when you look back at Looking it... Looking on the sunny side, Mark. Eh? Well, exactly. It's real politic, uh, Julian, as you know. And you, you think about 35 years ago, that market was uh, fairly tight then. And I think it went into um, a long-term long decline, at least in terms of prices, because of... Uh, the decommissioning process that was agreed between Gorbachev and, and Reagan, uh, a lot of enriched material uh, reached the domestic market and that held prices in check for uh, the longest time, really. Uh, I guess the, the commodities that you mentioned up to now as well, uh, what I find interesting is that uh, the, the situation in Ukraine and, in fact, the, the pandemic before has sort of laid bare... Um, some of the, the structural faults in these markets as well. Um, when you were talking about crude oil there earlier, and it is interesting that uh, Boris uh, came up with a, a blank in uh, Riyadh and uh, allegedly uh, the Saudis didn't even take Biden's call. I don't know how true that is. It seems extraordinary if that was the case. But it actually raises questions about the, the true extent of Saudi spare capacity it's always been a problem because uh, 
the uh, the statistics that come out uh, uh, from the Desert Kingdom have always been open to question. And um, yeah, I, th I think when all of the hopefully when this comes to a speedy conclusion on the security front, it will engender some new thinking uh, on in terms of security of supply. I mean, it's already doing that, obviously, but the situation was probably a little bit more dire than than we thought originally. Sure, yeah. And and can you imagine if this had happened pre the shale revolution and the US was still completely reliant on the Saudis and Russians for supply? I guess, yeah. you know, they can go back to Venezuela, they can go back to Iran, but uh, this is, I think, going to knock, uh, what is it? Uh, Russia's the, the third largest or equal second largest supplier of oil. Um, this is going to be a real, it's going to be a really big impact. And and even if it's not, if Europe and, and others haven't sanctioned um, Russian oil, the sanctions are going to hit in other ways. So I think the the IAA is already forecasting, I think, a quite quite quick 3 million barrel a day cut to global supply, which is about 3% of global supply because of the, the, the other sanctions that aren't even directly targeted at, at, at oil. Hmm. Is that stuff like spare parts that you suddenly can't get on the market anymore? I, I think it's 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 more related to the financial side of things, but but that that spare parts um, issue will start to hit. I mean, even now the the even though spare parts are available for for someone like the Norwegians, they're pushing back maintenance to to get supply at at its complete maxima right now, and that will have kick on effects around the corner too. Hmm. We've not even mentioned nickel. Yeah, I'm. Like we haven't we haven't dug into nickel too much in the magazine this week because if you boil it down to the impacts on a, on an everyday investor, mm. they're not huge. You know the LME has really struggled to get a handle on this, and I think they've they suspended trading again today um, because the prices were wanting to do things they didn't like. Um, yeah, but, actually, they went further, didn't they? They cancelled a load of trades, didn't they? Or yeah. at least uh, completed contracts. So last Tuesday morning, when we got to the the famous or infamous hundred thousand dollar a ton mark, they cancelled a bunch of those trades and then basically rewound it to Monday night. So they're saying, I think forty eight thousand a ton is is acceptable, but a hundred is not. Um, and I think this is, you know, you've got you've got metals traders and 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 energy traders as well screaming out to. For, for a hand because the system that they've been working under is is not working right now. But, um, you know, is someone at a nickel mine, say Glencore, actually getting $100,000 a tonne? No, it's not how this is working. I mean, Glencore's traders might be doing well or screaming. I mean, Trafigura has 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 had financial issues because of these uh, this trading scenario. But, yeah, for, for, for an average investor slash someone who, who needs a bit of nickel to build some steel, um, the effects aren't massive, I don't think, right now. Well, thanks, Alex. That's uh, your article, The Other Commodities Hit by War, is uh, available now. Magazine website, you, you know the drill, listener. At all, at all good uh, browsers. <laughs> on all good browsers. Uh, we're going to move on now. Um, Julian, uh, you emailed me earlier in the week to say you wanted to touch on some uh, some takeover attempts that that well one or two have fallen through recently, and it, it's led to the question, I suppose, that whether in the current climate buyers are adopting a more safety first approach. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's um, an interesting uh, phenomenon at the moment because uh, takeovers certainly last year or the third quarter of last year were were running very hot. I mean, we did the whole thing about. How private equity was getting involved and everybody was buying up FTSE 100 companies uh, obviously that happened in the case of Morrison's 
Um, <clears throat> but since that point, and it's li it's literally really in the last three months, um, uh, the 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 market has gone very quiet in terms of key takeovers, and there are a couple that uh, are on the slate at the moment that look increasingly um, at risk of not going through. I would say. I mean, we already had Spectrus. Um, Spectrus's bid for Oxford uh, Instruments pull, pull out, or Spectrus pulled out of that, citing um, an uncertain market conditions, uncertain future. Uh, and the other one that seems to have run into the sand is um, the, the bid by uh, National Aviation Services, which is a Q80 company uh, for John Menzies, which is a, a heavily sort of <clears throat> impacted a, um, aviation support services group. Um, here in the UK uh, that obviously got clobbered by the, the effect of the pandemic. Um, but that seems to have run into the sands. I just looked it up and um, the takeover panel has extended the deadline uh, for which NAS has to make a put up or shut up off um, to the 30th of March. So basically it looked like it was done and dusted at sort of 608 pence a share. Uh, and everybody was going to go away happy and you know bathe in champagne, um, but that that seems to have completely turned around. And it, you know it, there is a question really whether um, there is a, a um, that the whether the M and A market now, in expectation of the fact that uh, interest rates are going up um, everywhere now. Yeah, I think that there's always been this uh, a direct correlation between the cost of capital and the M and A market, and uh, it may be the case that. Uh, the involvement of private equity will diminish over time if the Fed keeps uh, keeps on hiking interest rates over the, the coming year or so. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, we can only really await developments, certainly in the case of, of John Menzies. But I mean, you wonder how many others are going to get cold feet. And and the one that I, I, that I thought we could talk about um, in more depth really was the Pearson um, potential Pearson takeover by Apollo, which is actually a private equity firm out of New York or based in New York. And um, they basically went for Pearson at uh, 800 a share in November that got directed, that got rejected. Um, they're now up to 854 pence a share. Uh, and the sort of the board is kind of umming, umming and ahhing. But basically, they've got until the 8th of April to sort something out. Basically, that's their deadline. Um, but I just wanted to just open it up. I mean, Pearson used to be a the owner of the Investors Chronicle, and I don't think we've ever failed in the last since they sold the company, uh, sold us actually as a as a, an entity that to to have a good kicking at that company. But <laughs> I just wonder what people's thoughts are uh, about whether um, you know what they think about the uh, the takeover, whether the Pearson is really uh, really up to continuing as a an independent company, or whether they the shareholders should just put up their arms and say, well. You know, nothing's worked over the last decade, and we'll just give up and sell out. Well, firstly, I, I don't think we're that petty, are we? Are we? <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself, Mark. <laughs> I, I've never covered uh, Pearson, uh, oddly enough, but I think it, it's clear that there were some, with the benefit of hindsight, no doubt, some uh, management decisions that they'd rather regret going into markets that uh, didn't uh, prove nearly as lucrative as uh, as they initially uh, hoped, I guess. The edu educational market in the US uh, stands out on that basis. Um, but Alex, you've mm. probably got a better idea of that than I do. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, well, I, I'm not going to get sued anymore. I, w I wouldn't. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I was only an 
employee of Pearson for a year and a half. So I suppose any special grudge against the company didn't rub off too, no grudges, too much on no on pettiness. Uh, but um, I mean, the interesting thing about the, this apology, I suppose, it, it compared with the, the Menzies NAS one is at least um, judging by what Apollo said uh, last week that they made their final offer um, uh, in March. In other words, after the Russia's invasion of Ukraine and I suppose this huge risk, this added risk premium, which has been added to any takeover or just equity valuation at the moment with everything so uncertain. I mean, Pearson, it's not it's not quite so terribly in the crossfires as other sectors. I imagine, you know, John May, John Menzies as a proxy to to aviation growth is probably a bit more of a of a dicey situation here but it is interesting that that apollo has said that they're still you know they're still looking at it they've and that's that's post you know the huge dollop of uncertainty that's come in in the last three weeks um but yeah i mean the the menzies deal was at least seemed to be signed and signed and sealed on the 21st of feb and then three days later we had the uh, you know the terrible event started to unfurl. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that that to me looks like the one to watch. It looks slightly more slippery, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, I have, I have a question on on PE and kind of bit more history and and as a as a, for context, I'm reading Barbarians at the Gate right now, um, and you know you cost the capital through this this this. PE rush in the in the mid to late eighties was what fifteen percent, like interest rates at fifteen percent. I mean they they managed it then. Yeah, I, I think there were there were for brief periods though that that wasn't right okay. through the the latter part of it. I mean they they spiked it, they spiked the base rate at certain points through, but yeah, I mean I mean I, I my first I think my first mortgage that I had was something about eight and a half percent. I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that. Uh, in a similar boat. This is where we start this generational warfare. <laughs> it was hard in my day. It was hard in my day when my houses day. could be bought for twelve thousand pounds. Yeah. But, but it is true. Though. I mean, there's plenty of people uh, of working age now who've uh, yeah. probably never experienced interest rates other than you know single figures and low single figures at that. Plenty of, I mean, not Apollo, but plenty of plenty of poor little PE firms that are, are going to have a rude awakening. Yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd think. You know, P P should still be able to prove itself as the masters of the universe with, you know, rates at under under one percent. You know, if they can't, if they're so dependent on, um, you know, zero interest rates, then what is the point of them? Uh, but uh, <laughs> the, the, yeah, the we'll model see. was slightly different going back to the nineteen eighties yeah. and late nineteen seventies as well. We're talking then really about um, the practice of asset stripping, and there was um. I mean, they were all conglomerates that you could break up. Well, exactly, they, you know. exactly, and uh, and beyond that, the the privatized industries as well were ripe for that. Um, yeah, and then you've got the approach. The, a lot of the the what would you call it the 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 pitch around the the purchase of Stagecoast by the the German um, fund um, and their logistics business is is like we really want to run you know mm. buses around Lincoln. We we love that model and, and we want to keep it going. And, I mean, that's what they've done. They bought a Belgian bus company and kept it running. Um, and turned around. The, the, the around a roundabout. <laughs> Not the actual bus. <laughs> <laughs> 
It was must have been one of those bendy buses. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting about that that conglomerate question. I mean, you wonder really the other thing that might happen if interest rates go up quite a lot is whether companies will start looking at the conglomerate model again as a way of i mean that was a way in the 60s and 70s of of diversifying your inflation risk basically and mm. the thing that was interesting about this I, I looked up the number of assets at one time that they owned and uh they they owned the financial times which obviously includes uh, uh investors chronicle at that point penguin books royal dalton crockery crown derby <laughs> Thames Television, The Economist, Madame Tussauds, yeah. and Chessington World of Adventures. <laughs> so, so, uh, you've got a pretty big spread of uh, potential businesses there. It's the classic um, cro crockery inflation hedge, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's really quite funny. I mean, the thing I found interesting was that, that, that basically Pearson got rid of all of those over 20 years basically starting with Marjorie Scardino when she took over and uh, but they sold everything for uh, basically for peanuts so basically Chessington World of Adventures and Madame Sousseau's gets turned into Merlin Entertainment and that gets bought up for like six billion at one point and they sold it for peanuts uh, and the same thing happened with um, a, another company they owned um, uh, that was a financial reporting company, Merger Markets and you know they flogged it off for 300 oh, yeah. million or something and mm. now it's worth over a billion uh, and it you know the question really is is the management at fault for not being able to run those very diverse businesses or um is there a, is there a real problem with with owning too much stuff i think that's probably the the issue isn't it i mean um and and we, and we don't know i mean they've become very focused on a education market but they don't seem to be very good at that either if it makes any sense and you, you kind of wonder whether they, they, they shouldn't just sell it up but. i don't know if it's a loose segue but i was also interested by alex you you writing earlier in the week about amc buying into a, um, a gold miner as well i think adam aaron has has read all his literature i read all his own you know literature and he's very excited about being a meme stock lord um and wants to share that love uh with um until now a completely abysmal mining company um i i saw a nice poll on twitter asking people which company they thought was worse i think highcroft won out slightly won 52 percent or so of the, of the vote um you know i i mistakenly waded into the the ape so amc shareholders call themselves apes um uh i won't explain why they're weird um and i mistakenly waded into their conversations on twitter and it was all, there's, you know, 15 million ounces of gold in the ground. This company has to be worth $60 billion. Um, and yeah, was, I guess it was a rude awakening or not a rude awakening, but a, a, almost a, a surprise to see that not everyone understands that, you know, refractory ore is quite difficult to mine and you need to build a, a pox plant <laughs> as London shareholders of, of Petra Pavlos and Metal <laughs> have, have, have discovered in, in recent years. Um, but I mean, Best of luck to the the owners of um, Highcroft. They've lost most of their money in recent years, and ideally, they've sold out yesterday. Isn't, isn't that the definition of a, a gold mine, um, Alex? Um, basically, a, a hole in the ground with a liar standing next to it, <laughs> um, or a look, cinema cinema chain owner now standing next to it. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, he went he went to visit it, and they do have a bit of a hole. Like, it's not an operating mine. Um, they tried that 
um, a bit last year, and it it didn't work that well. But um, yeah, he got to put the hard hat on. He got a he got a colourful vest. They might have given him some boots. I'm sure he loved it. Um, yeah, it's kind of an amusement park um, for CEOs who've just wasted twenty million dollars. I think Matt Levine I think made made this point in his in his newsletter earlier this week. But it, I mean, the meme stock thing in the in in a year of war, you know, continued pestilence and and what else? It's sort of you 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 wonder when it's gonna run aground that the but I, I mean financial markets are big places aren't there there's room for this this kind of mania um but, yeah i mean uh, i mean yeah. in the announcement of the 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 purchase um adam aaron mentioned the the success of of spider-man recently and and the batman um uh in recent weeks as well and you know maybe good shares will start becoming like art house films you know <laughs> um and then you've got the marvel efforts to no it's a, it's a bad analogy but yeah. <laughs> it, it it seems a little bit odd when you you look at um the impairments that uh, came about through uh, BHP and and Rio and all, all that's within when they bought a memory. cinema chain well yes of course <laughs> when they bought Hoyts and Sydney um yeah so i mean you know are we going to see another series of rash purchases in the market while commodity prices are bubbling away or is it a case of once bitten, twice shy? I suppose you shouldn't con- contradict ourselves too much as well, having just argued ourselves into the point of a conglomerate. Yeah. That well, <laughs> is, is actually the obvious thing for a, a, I, I don't a think anyone's cinema operators to do. I don't think anyone's tuning in here for consistency. <laughs> at least I, I hope not. I think it, it would make more sense to me if they bought a good one. Yeah. Or they invested in a good one. Um, but it's it's good that you mention uh, the big miners and, and M&A op- options, Mark, because our cover... In about a month, we'll be explaining that in great detail, and but I'll have a I'll have a good answer for you then. It's a fabulous segue, that one. <laughs> well, <laughs> always, always be selling, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's normally my job. <laughs> but but um, uh, well, thanks all. I think that's all we've got time for. So we'll, we'll leave it there if that's all right. But stay tuned, listener, for my quick conversation with Michael Fahey on his feature on the travel industry post COVID. So joining the podcast now is Michael Faye. Uh Hi, Michael. How are you? Hey, John. I'm all right, thanks. Yeah, good. Good, good. Um, you've read a long read this week. Uh, Travel industry bears COVID scars is is the title, yeah. and um, fairly self-explanatory. You're looking into the travel and tourist tourism industry, and yeah, I, I have to say it. It was. It does feel like the the industry has done remarkably come through covid remarkably unscathed but obviously as you as you look as you look into in your article um it's not quite that simple no um this was an interesting one to look at because um and i start the piece talking about the kind of early images um i mean the first thing that everybody remembers is the shots of maybe chinese cities wuhan in lockdown but then following that, it was the, the cruise ship, the Diamond Princess, which um, there were those kind of rolling news images of it being quarantined in this port in Yokohama in Japan, uh, as the case numbers seemed to just spread all the way through the ship. And when you looked at it from that point of view, and you saw lots of other cruise ships being turned away from ports, and 
airplanes being grounded uh, and shot out from certain markets. It seemed like this was something that could possibly maybe change the industry forever. And yet, here we are two years later, most people are quite happily uh, planning for the summer holidays and wanting to get away or just wanting to go travel to see friends and family somewhere where they've not been for ages. And when you speak to quite a few of the, or you see what the airlines are saying, what the the cruise operators are saying, they're all quite bullish about things returning to normal. Um, well, I mentioned in the story that Ryanair uh, is putting on something like 115% of capacity, of 2019 capacity for this year. So more flights than it had pre-COVID. You have other operators like Wizard doing similar things. Um, so in many ways, it looks like, you know, there, there are very few airlines that have gone bust. Uh, all of the major cruise lines are still going and in operation. So in many ways, it does look like the industry's come out of it unscathed, um, but it's not quite as simple as that, as we say in the piece, uh, both in terms of tourism and also for the, the anybody operating that kind of holiday leisure sector. Yeah, I mean, you, you dig into our, our vessels of travel, I guess, you you know, the airlines and, and the cruise ships. Um, Maybe you could go into a bit more detail on, on them. I mean, on the airlines, um, as you say, not many went under, but some have had to do some major uh, restructuring and, and and things like that, haven't they, to stay Yeah, through. so um, I spoke to IATA, uh, the International Air Transport Association, the Industry Association, and got some numbers from them. And uh, there were, in total, something like 90 airlines have gone bust, which uh, sounds like a, quite a lot, but then there have been also a lot of startups in that time, and quite a few have been recapitalized. In many instances, governments stepped in, in places like Germany with Lufthansa, in France with Air France KLM, um, because it was pretty clear, and even in the US, a lot of the major US airlines got backing from the government. Um, and the there are some kind of long-term implications of that. Uh, there's quite a famous quote, I think it's from Warren Buffett, about how you make a fortune in the airline industry, how you make a, a small fortune in the airline industry, and it's to start with a large fortune. Um, the industry doesn't, it's never been the most profitable. And now that they're saddled with these huge amounts of debt, um, Again, IATA is saying something like the, the amount of debt that airlines are carrying has gone up by 200 billion to 650 billion. Um, and that is going to weigh heavily on a lot of the operators in the industry for quite a long time. Mm. What, what about what about cruise cruise liners? Because you, you devote a good portion of the article to them as well. Yeah, so in a similar sort of fashion, um, the major cruise liners, the the likes of Carnival and Norwegian, 
and Royal Caribbean have taken on massive amounts of debt. Um, I think uh, in Carnival's terms, they took on another 20 billion uh, and have had to do a couple of equity raises along the way as well. Um, and the interesting thing I found with cruise liners and both of, when you look at both airlines and cruise liners, the things they have in common is that they have to plan years in advance for some of the capital outlays for the new planes that they're bringing in on board and the new ships. And um, in some ways that gives them a little flexibility. So you have this massive hit to demand but if you've ordered ships or planes four or five years out, there's not really a great deal you can do. You can do some rescheduling in terms of timing, but you've already committed to the spend. And so it seems with the cruise liners, particularly a lot of the big shipyards that serve them are still doing reasonably okay. Now with airlines, it's slightly different. You've got Airbus and Boeing and Boeing has, uh, <laughs> the airline orders have fallen last year, or the orders for new airplanes have fallen last year, but not by a massive amount. And it's also difficult to untangle some of Boeing's own industry problems, which we've talked about previously in the magazine, um, with the kind of general fall in demand. Um, but yeah, for cruise liners particularly, it's... It, it's going to be quite a tough road back. It's again, they're very bullish on demand. I think Carnival was saying that um, bookings for the latter half of this year were as big in um, were as big as they were in 2019, and in revenue terms, are even slightly ahead for the back half of last of this year and early next year. In capacity terms, the cruise liners are talking about having all of the ships back out onto the water by this summer. Um, so yeah, it's that thing of operationally, it looks like things are getting, gonna get back to normal fairly quickly, uh, but there could be, there, there are still a lot of issues that need to be dealt with in terms of debt and restructuring maybe further down the line. Mm. And the final sort of piece of the puzzle that I just wanted to touch on on this on this podcast um is the the hoteliers as well and uh, yeah. i was struck by that quote you used to write in the article that bill gates was worried that you know 50 percent of business travel could be arranged um and then you but then you follow that up by saying hoteliers have actually seen seen been boosted by um corporate get-togethers which i, I thought was quite interesting it's sort of an unforeseen unforeseen result of uh, of um covid working i guess yeah, I mean, there's there's no doubt that the pandemic has been bad for business and corporate travel, and that there, you know, the ways of working have changed. The fact that I'm speaking to you now over video conferencing software um, means that the technology and the way in which businesses work means that there's structurally there's probably going to be less corporate travel and again for airlines that's an issue because some of them earn up to a third of the revenue from the corporate travelers sat in the lovely expensive seats at the front of the plane um for hotels obviously uh you have the trade 
they're based around weekday trade from corporates and weekend trade from leisure travel. Uh, so the hotels probably weren't as badly hit as the cruise lines and the airlines, which you know, had to shut down for large periods. Some hotels did shut down for a little while, but they they could gear their offers more towards the, the leisure customers at the time. But yeah, as you said, not everything that happened in the pandemic is a bad thing for them. And if we're doing that kind of hybrid working where we do two, three days in the office or and two, three days at home or less for some people, and they may only come in to do a team meeting every couple of months, then there is an opportunity there for hoteliers definitely to go after that uh, business, business corporate travel se segment and that large get togethers. I think uh, in the article we mentioned that Marriott's chief highlighted uh, an event that Salesforce had in New York. And I think they had 5,000 staff for a week, which generated 25,000 room nights for them and that is probably the type of thing that maybe wouldn't have been done as much before the pandemic mm -hmm. well thank you very much michael for that uh for that little preview you can find the full article what it's about two and a half thousand words michael something like that Definitely, um yeah. <laughs> that's in the magazine this week and uh of course on our on our website as well on our IC website. Michael, thank you very much for joining me. We'll catch up with you again soon. No worries. Thank you, thank you John. The Companies and Market Show was edited and produced by me, John Rogers. And don't forget to get in touch with any questions or comments or feedback on the Companies and Market Show. You can reach me at john.rogers at ft.com. That's J-O-H-N dot R-O-G-E-R-S at ft.com. We'll see you next week. <laughs>